Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake rule. Cold blood is with the Sprouski. I'm a boss. Flip the coin, toss the straws. I'm out of loss. How my brains get busted, slinging lettuce into couplets. Muck up the subjects. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about mutual understanding, connection, repulsion, perception, moral decision-making, and empathy. What brings us together and what pulls us apart? Action and inaction and reaction. I've been thinking quite a bit about Paul Bloom's empathy that you clarify in your book. I mean, when he was saying that there's problems with empathy, were you, were, did your mind go to emotional empathy or were you thinking of cognitive empathy or, or had, did you already have that clear distinction in, in the definitions? I don't know how, how well I had the distinctions in my head. Over the course of working on the book, I've come to be more sensitive to these distinctions that you're talking about. And, you know, when I tell people I'm against empathy, sometimes they freak out and they say, oh, you're against goodness and kindness and understanding. And I'm not against goodness or kindness and understanding. Um, I'm against empathy in a particular sense. So, so maybe the three definitions you're talking about you could talk about uh, cognitive empathy, which is understanding what goes on in people's heads. And I'm not against that, although I don't necessarily see that as a force for good. Um, if you're kind and you want to make the world a better place, understanding what people want and how they think is a wonderful way to do so. On the other hand, if you're sadistic or cruel, you're a, a seducer, or a con man, a psychopath, high cognitive empathy does you well there too. If you want to manipulate people and make them suffer, it's great to know how they tick. So that's cognitive empathy. Then there's emotional empathy, and that's my target. That's what I'm against, which is feeling the experience of others, feeling their pain, feeling their grief, their anxiety. A lot of people think this is a wonderful force for good. I think they're mistaken. And I would distinguish both of these from compassion, or sometimes our concern or kindness, which is simply caring about people uh, without necessarily feeling what they're feeling. And I think that this is critical. David Hume pointed out that it's not enough to know the right thing to do. You need some sort of motivation. And I think that compassion is a good motivation for us to use. And do you think generally with, with the work you've done, because you've immersed yourself in this, joining all sorts of groups and reading all sorts of articles and going to conferences, generally when people talk about empathy, do you think they are talking about the emotional empathy rather than the cognitive empathy? People use it in different ways. Um, some lay people use it very broadly. And in fact, some neuroscientists use it very broadly. Um, and in some way, I, I don't really care. I mean, the, the, the book is not an argument about the words or the definitions, so long as we're very clear what we're talking about. So it's true, and you're right to point this out. Sometimes people talk past each other. One person says they're for empathy, the other person says they're against empathy. It turns out there's no real disagreement. They're just talking about different things. So I want to be clear on the outset. What I'm worried about, whatever one decides to call it, is empathy in the sense of sharing other people's feelings, feeling what they feel. Because when I read in your book, you said, I, you know, you hate terminology arguments. And I kind of chuckled. I thought, well, I think he's kind of stuck himself smack in the middle of one in the sense of, People are going to take such strong positions against you depending on what they think empathy means. And so in the book, you do a great job of clarifying right from the beginning. And I'm wondering if, you know, and people's reactions to you might be because they're not really thinking of empathy as feeling someone's feelings. And then when mm -hmm. they do, what does that mean, actually feeling someone's feelings, rather than they might hear that and think, oh, well, I'm just understanding how they feel, which is cognitive empathy, not emotional empathy, where you're actually feeling the feeling. You know, it's interesting because I had worried when the book would come out, people would freak out and with the title and, and misinterpret my arguments. But and, and certainly I've had a lot of great debate and great discussion, but people seem to be pretty quick to grasp the argument I'm making. And in part, I think, and I have to credit my editor, Denise Oswald, for this, she gave me a very good subtitle, The Case for Rational Compassion. And when you hear that, you say, well, I guess this guy isn't a psychopath. He's not arguing for selfishness. He's not arguing we don't need to care about other people. He's making a distinction here between empathy on the one hand and rational compassion on the other. And I think that, that really does help clarify things. I think it does. And you had, had said that 
you'd been called an intellectual disgrace and a moral monster. And that one person wrote, read an article you wrote and said, that's possibly the dumbest thing I've ever read. And yet, so you powered on, it tells me that this is important to you. Like this is something that you think really matters a lot to have gone forth and then written the book. Why does it matter, do you think, so much to, to you and to the rest of us? Well, I think like everybody I know, like a lot of people, um, I want the world to be a better place. I want, at least for my own life, to think hard about the choices I make as a parent, as a husband, as a friend, a colleague, a teacher, and also as somebody involved in whatever distant way with people in faraway lands, like ch involved in charity, um, playing some role in politics, if only choosing who to vote for. And I want to know the right way to do things. I want to know the right way to, to affect things. And my belief is that relying on empathy and more generally relying on our gut feelings has horrible consequences. It has, had, it has led to wars and cruelties, damaged relationships, people who are horrible at helping others, charity that's intended to do good and makes the world worse. And to the extent I could affect a social change, even a small one, even like a 1% change, where people think a little bit more about the effects of their actions, where people are a little bit tempted more to ruminate on the constant benefits and moral principles, then it would be worth it. Then I think, I, you know, I think everybody wants to make a difference. This is one way I could. It's funny because the reason I sought you out originally was after the election, I was thinking, I really want to do a show on, on being empathetic and understanding different people's positions, people that disagree with each other and that have a, a, what seems like a trouble to understand the other person's perspective. And after I read your book, I thought, okay, I'm thinking about this in a completely new way and unexpected because I hadn't really thought about the distinctions in emotional empathy and whether or not that was good. I hadn't made that division in the types of empathy. And I'm thinking in one sense it matters what you do with it, right? It's kind of like riches and powers or guilt. Like those things can be helpful, but it depends then what you do with it and how you act upon it, how it serves you. Do you think that, that being naturally empathetic is a, as a skill, a talent, or, or a curse? Are you naturally empathetic? Um, I'll, I'll answer the last question, but I, we should, we should talk about, uh, the election a little bit because of course issues of empathy come into that as well. Um, I am an, I am a pretty empathic, emp I don't know, never know whether to do empathic I or wonder. empathetic. That was the, the hardest choice I had to do. Are they the same? Book. Like technically? And yes. They're okay. like, they're like psychopath and sociopath. Two okay. words that mean the same thing. Okay. So let's use empathic. I like empathic. Um, I'm I'm fairly empathic. I you know if I'm with somebody who's depressed, I get sad. If I'm with somebody who's anxious, I get anxious. I find some depictions of suffering and stories of suffering overwhelming. I feel some some echo of other people's pain, and it's not a good trait. It actually is not a good trait. There's there's it doesn't make me a better helper. It doesn't make me a better parent. Doesn't you know? Um, I think I'm I think I'm at my best as a person when I try to be kind when I think about the ramifications of my actions, and I'm not swayed by my gut feelings. I mean, the argument against empathy is that empathy works like a spotlight. It zooms you in on something. It zoom, makes you focus on something. But because it's a spot, like a spotlight, it's incredibly biased. Your empathy is gonna be biased. People who look like you, people who are attractive, people who are friendly, much harder to people in distant lands, people who you are afraid of, people who are unattractive. It's also innumerate. Empathy is why we value the one over the hundred. It's short-sighted. It's why we value things immediately than in the future. One way I put it in my book is it's because of empathy um, that we care more about a baby stuck in a well than about climate change. And so those are the sort of forces motiv motivating me to try to overcome my own empathy. I thought and, uh, you, and this book. you also had a great example in the distinction between our reaction to Sandy Hook shootings versus the just children are being killed routinely in Chicago. Right. And we see now, um, um, as, as we're taping this, this episode, um, there's enormous uh, concern about Syria, about children in Syria, particularly because of some videos that have been released and so on. The crisis in Syria is absolutely terrible. But... The next time, next week, they'll, they'll have videos from people in the Sudan. And then the week after, we'll be talking about Flint, Michigan.
And this is not a good way to do intelligent policy. It's not a good way to motivate our concerns where we're drawn in by the most compelling pictures and the most weepy of faces. Um, if you really care about people, you should focus on making the world a better place and be less drawn in to these sort of empathy traps and empathy manipulations, particularly when sometimes they're used to motivate violence and war. So um, when I was reading your chapter on violence and cruelty, I literally had to stop halfway through the first page. And I really noticed, I thought, well, you know, I've always known that I'm empathetic, but I noticed that I was actually having the physical sensation. Like I, I was sick, I was so uncomfortable physically, and I had to stop. And I thought, I've had that throughout my life. My son will have it. If you even say the word blood or you say anything about any medical procedure, yeah. he gets just all gooey and it's like, stop, stop, stop. He can barely stand it. And I hadn't ever really thought of that as being empathetic um, and that, that I wasn't in that moment imagining what it would be like or thinking about what they must have experienced in that atrocity or, or when they were being uh, maltreated. And so a, a light really went off for me as far as that to start thinking about, is that helpful in any way? Like, am I having that, that physiological experience, shared experience? Is it helpful? And it's certainly not pleasant for me. And I could imagine that it would also lead me at times, you had talked about how we might cross the street when we see a homeless person. And I thought, especially if you are empathetic, that you're physically so uncomfortable at that moment. And by nature, we want to avoid discomfort. And so even though we might be a caring, compassionate, kind person, we have, I think, this conflict as we want to move away from the discomfort. That's nicely put. Um, your son, you know, could do all sorts of things in his life, but if he stays that empathic, he's unlikely to be a doctor or a nurse or a therapist or first responder or you know, somebody who works with people in great pain or suffering, because if you absorb their suffering, you're not that good at it. The people who are best at those sorts of jobs, and wouldn't be people like me, are people who care about other people, uh, want to make them better, understand them, but don't feel their pain, don't suffer alongside with them. And so what about what seems to be a very large group of people and a very large trend who want people in every area to be more empathetic and to start training people in school and in hospitals and all over to be more empathetic? Are they talking about a different sort of empathy or are they people who are not empathetic and so they don't actually know what it means to have that physical sensation? What do you think? They're typically talking about a different sort of uh, empathy. I, I At one point I looked over uh, calls for medical schools to train doctors to be more empathetic or empathic. And, and you know, when I first thought, I thought, oh, I'm really going to disagree with this. Then I looked over what they were training the doctors to do, and they were training them to spend more time with patients, be more respectful, listen, say kind things. Not against any of that. And in fact, one of the calls for doctors to be empathic was very strict. They said, we are not asking you to feel the pain of other people. That'd be a train wreck. Don't do that. So a lot of the calls for more empathy, you know, I, they are using a phrase in a different way. They just mean nicer. And that's totally fine. But empathy in the sort of sense we're talking about it now is not a good trait for people who want to help others. It's also not a good trait for a parent. I mean, if my kid is having an anxiety attack because his homework is due and he didn't start it and it's all right, whatever, it's not good parenting for me to get an anxiety attack, for me to freak out along with him. What's good parenting is for me to step back and kind of say, well, here's, you know, I, I'm going to support you on this. I'm going to give you a hand. Let's, let's take a break. Let's do it and do all those sorts of things good parents do, which involves a bit of distance. When I read the, the part on parenting, I started also thinking about the different parts of the brain and our fight and or our flight reaction. And I was thinking, okay, you know, if you are empathetic and your child is in an extremely stressful situation and you then go into a very stressful situation, yeah, it's like okay, I either want to do anything to stop this for both of us because not only am I now experiencing it, but I know that they're experiencing the same thing or I want to run, right? It, it, it's now shifted completely off of dealing with whatever their actual situation is and trying to resolve that the best way possible to now just resolving this uh, elevated emotional discomfort. That's right. 
That's right. So if you think about all the times as a parent, you're freaking out. Those are never your best moments, you know, and, and, and that's never a good thing. You know, obviously, look, some people are bad parents because they care too little about their kids. But I think for a lot of us, we have the opposite problem. We care too much. We, we, we absorb their feelings to too great an extent. And any sort of, you know, caring for, particularly for a kid, particularly for a young kid, often involves enduring the short-term suffering of the kid. It actually often involves causing the short-term suffering of the kid, where you tell the kid, no, it's a school night, so you can't go out. I'm going to take away the Xbox. You have to sit down, do your homework, and eat your vegetables and all that. And if you can't bear the suffering of the kid, discipline and structure is impossible. So if you really love your kid, you have to be willing to cause some distress. And if the distress comes back and hits you, that's a problem. So I want to talk a little bit about something I think that's related to that. Um, you say that empathy is biased, short-sighted, enumerate, can spark violence, corrosive, and exhaust the spirit. And the part about exhausting the spirit, um, I thought about a, a part of the book where you talk about an example of Hannah and unmitigated communion. And that seems to be connected with maybe the relationship we have with our children, but exaggerated. So I wonder if maybe you might talk a little bit about what that means, unmitigated communion. So as I was working on a book, I was talking to a, a friend of mine about uh, another professor about the problems of being too, too empathic. And she points out that there's sort of a feminist literature in feminist psychology um, about a phenomenon known as unmitigated communion. And people who suffer from this and they're mostly, but not always women, um, are sort of too attached to other people. The, the suffering and happiness of other people, say their partners, becomes extremely important to them, so much that they neglect themselves, so people with this syndrome are often unhealthy and, and subjected, because they don't take care of themselves, they always focus on the other person. Often a relationship isn't good because the other person finds this oppressive. Um, and one way to see this, there's a lot going on, but one way to see this is is a case where your empathy dial is turned on too high. And again, just like a bad parent doesn't have enough distance from the kid, a, a bad partner, romantic partner, doesn't have enough distance from the partner. And you see that in unmitigated communion, as opposed to what you call sort of a healthy communion, where, you know, you, you love the other person, you, you, um, you share activities, but you don't mirror them. You just, you know, you relate to them. And you also have your own independent agency and independent concerns. When I was reading that, I was thinking about also codependency and how I, I was a divorce mediator for some time. And oftentimes, codependency, you could, would recognize a big problem in the relationship. And that seemed to be related to the unmitigated communion in a sense that for often for these, and as it was typically women, by the end of the marriage, they sort of lost themselves which wasn't yeah. good for anyone because they weren't really there for the other person any longer in the way that had been attractive from the beginning. And it certainly wasn't a healthy or satisfying experience for the person who was codependent. And yet they got to a place where their value, their connection was so strong and the focus so on other that their value became in that, right? That's where they had value was their ability to be empathetic to the other person. That's a good point. I think that, like I said, there are other things going on in those cases above and beyond increased empathy. But I think increased empathy is part and parcel of it, where um, one, problem, one, of the, one problem with empathy is it dissolves distinctions you probably want to make. Now, you know, as we talk about this, it, it's important to realize I'm not really against empathy altogether. I think empathy is wonderful in many ways. Um, as I mentioned in my book, it's a great source of pleasure, sharing experiences with your children, with people you love, certainly um, TV shows and novels and movies would be impossible to enjoy if you couldn't empathize with fictional characters. So I wouldn't want to live without empathy. The complaint with empathy is only how it relates to being a good person. Could you live without emotional empathy? Could you live with just cognitive empathy? Well, you could live without. You no, you. Strictly speaking, I'm live you. You. But, uh, it, no. Is there a value to to emotional empathy to physically experiencing value. what the other person is experiencing? 
there's a huge value. There's a value in day-to-day life. So one of the advantages, one of the joys of having a kid is um, taking experiences you felt like a hundred times before, like uh, seeing fireworks or watching a Hitchcock movie or eating an ice cream sundae and then getting them all over again through your child. One of the one of the joys of relationships, including sexual relationships, is feeling the experience of the other person as best you can. And that's really something. And finally, um, emotional empathy comes in when you're watching a TV show or a movie or reading a novel. And for that time, you are Anna Karenina or Walter White or, you know, and or Tony Soprano. And, and you're in their heads, you're being what they are, and you're experiencing their anxiety and their energy and their anger, and that's exhilarating. Lip, putting yourself in, in the life, shoes of other people, not just intellectually, but emotionally, viscerally, is one of the great pleasures of life. So the problem comes in, you had said, when feeling another's emotions rather than understanding them obscures the rational mind. Mm-hmm. So why, what... What shifts when that begins to happen? Well, the, the problem arises when, when it, not so much, when, when it comes to making moral decisions. So emotional empathy is wonderful in the ways we just talked about. But when it comes to figuring out where should I give to charity? What kind of laws do I want? When should I go to war? How should I treat my students? Emotional empathy becomes an awful guide. Because it's biased, it's enumerate, it's parochial, and it's overall stupid. And so it's a horrible guide for decision-making, but could be a good guide for pleasure. I mean, a lot of emotions are like this. So there's a lot to be said in favor of lust. Lust could be a great part of life, but you wouldn't want to make your decisions based on lust. Um, You know, anger is kind of a mixed bag. I think anger could often be important. But there are times when you lose your temper, and it's a very poor guide for, for decision-making. I, in the last week, just coincidentally, I was rereading Harville Hendricks' book, Getting the Love You Want. And um, he talks about his Imago Dialogues. And his philosophy is that in an intimate relationship, the other person will either reflect uh, attributes, negative or positive, of our original caregivers, but also that... We may choose them because they are reflecting back to us the, what Jung described as the shadow self that we've rejected. And that um, we originally were attracted to that, but then later on when we're seeing this negative part of us, we want to push it away. And I was thinking as far as in an intimate relationship, the effects of having a strong empathetic connection for both people in one that if the person is suffering and I'm thinking of the negative aspects of it then they are suffering and then you are empathizing and so now you're suffering too right I don't think that probably is helpful for them but also probably doesn't feel very good for them that not only have you now taken on what's their problem but now their problem has caused you great suffering as well it's 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 lose-lose if I'm sad and we're talking and I'm sad and I want support. And instead of providing support, you get sad. And I have to support you. You know, nothing's been gained. Um, you know, it's, that's not to say that if I'm sad and we're close, I would want you not to be happy that I'm sad. I want you to respond, was it, well, that's too bad, and try to, and try to work on it. But the idea that this, but, but simple mirroring, simple empathy in that sense, makes things worse and not better. Now, positive emotions are different. If you're happy... It's, a, it's fine for your happiness to spread into my head. That's not a problem. It's with negative emotions in a relationship that these things uh, pose all sorts of difficulties. So I want to take a short break, and then I want to come back and talk about compassion rather than empathy. All right, we're back. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman, and I'm talking to professor and author Paul Bloom. So I want to talk a little bit about compassion rather than empathy. And I thought we could focus on your example in the book of Buddhist monk and neuroscientist and his experience with the actual physical experience of being focused on either an empathetic response or a compassionate response. So this is uh, Matthew Ricard, uh, a Buddhist monk and a biologist who's done some wonderful work with the neuroscientist Tanya Singer. 
I kind of met him by accident at a conference. We got to talking about empathy and compassion. And he, he got me going on the Buddhist literature, which makes a really important distinction between the two. Um, many Buddhist scholars are very much anti-empathy. They think it exhausts you, it's burnout. But they're very pro-compassion. And that got me interested in what the distinction would be. And again, people use the words in different ways. I'm interested in like what are psychological mechanisms. And um, and so you do empathy is sharing the experiences of somebody else. Uh, you're sad, so I'm sad. You're in pain, I'm in pain. While compassion is caring about other people without necessarily absorbing their experiences. So you could imagine um, I, I see somebody in tremendous pain. Maybe they're depressed or something. And I could like love them and really want to make them better without in the slightest way becoming depressed myself. Now, as I'm describing, I'm sort of saying, well, there's this thing and there's that thing and they're separate. But but Singer and uh, Ricard did all sorts of studies. So they did studies with uh, normal people and had them feel empathy versus feel compassion. And it turns out different parts of the brains light up. It's overlapping, but there's some differences. And compassion is exhausting and unpleasant. I'm sorry, empathy is exhausting and unpleasant. And compassion is invigorating. And then Matthew Ricard himself did these studies where he put himself in a scanner and he'd induce himself to feel empathy for suffering people. And he said, this, this feels awful. But when he felt compassion for suffering people, he felt great. And I think the same thing holds just more generally. You can't, you can't be a good person without some sort of motivation. Just getting the answers right in your head, being a utilitarian, thinking logically, is a wonderful way to make decisions, the right way to make decisions, I think. But you need some sort of kick in the pants, some sort of motivation. And what I argue in the book, which is why I talk about rational compassion, is that compassion is a much better motivator than empathy. I was thinking, you know, in, in our small town, we have many people who are um, Buddhists, and, and there's a big following, and they always sort of tripped me up with the dogma that I th thought was misinterpreted, but not sure since I'm not an expert on Buddhism, the idea that they were going to sacrifice, and they were going to sort of suffer in allegiance with the suffering of others in the world, and that this was sort of the interpretation of, of Buddhism, that, you know, it was, it was about sort of... Um, of really being empathetic with the suffering in the world, rather than what you explain in the book and what you're explaining now, as far as being in a compassionate place where you're coming from a place of sort of balance and, and light and, and energy to maybe have cognitive um, empathy, but to utilize compassion in your connection to reduce the level of suffering. Yeah, that's exactly right, and and you know you know it, it it would the difference gets reflected in the kind of person you are when you're helping, which is somebody who helps and is is caught up in empathic connections, will find helping difficult, but somebody like Ricard, I mean, you know the the his uh, the name the U.S. press has given him is the happiest man in the world, he's really a happy joyful guy, even though he devotes his life to helping people who are suffering. And so you have these different attitudes towards suffering. And I think Buddhist thought is, is a nice illustration of how, of the right way to think about it. And do you think it's related at all, a step back, as far as your motivation for wanting to help or your intention in helping? Is that some indication as to where you're going to come from with your approach to helping? I think it is. You know, I, I, there's a story I tell in my book. I was on a radio show and I was talking about, uh, with a, uh, minister, and the conversation turned to child beggars in in Africa and in India, and I pointed out an article I just read. I hadn't really been thinking about empathy that much. An article I just read, which says you shouldn't give to these kids. Um, by giving them, they give a part of what they get to to adults who are who are supervising them, and you're supporting this criminal organization which enslaves and often maims thousands of children. If you want to help kids, there's better ways to do so, like give it to Oxfam, for instance. And the person, the minister was shocked. And she said, you know, that's, I, I, I totally reject that. I love giving to kids. I love giving to kids. When I give to kids, I feel this intimate connection, this warmth, this humanity. 
And I thought about that. I didn't say anything at the time. And I thought about that later. And and it occurs to me, it goes back to what you're saying now, which is, it depends what you want. If what you want is a good buzz, a good feeling and a good rush, a good little dopamine kick, then give to the child beggars. Go give to 100 charities, each a little bit of money uh, with the cutest kids on them, and you'll feel really good. If you want to make the world a better place and help people, there's better ways to do it. And going back to what we were talking about before, um, empathy, indulging one's empathy, if you could choose to do that, is might give you a lot of satisfaction. But And if your goal is, I want to have a lot of satisfaction, it's a great way to do it. But if your goal is to help people, you should try to nurture your compassion and you should try to do so by figuring out the best way to make the world a better place. Which I think comes back to the idea of the role of the rational mind in decision-making and this combination between the two. You said we might need that empathetic burst to motivate us, but then the rational mind has to come in in, into decision-making. You had said in your chapter, The Age of Reason, we should try to believe true things. How do you think we're doing with that? Um, I think we try. I mean... There's always a lot going on. There's self-interest. There's biases. There's social signaling. I think people tend to look a lot, particularly regarding politics, we often tend to look a lot stupider than we really are because we're trying not to aspire to truth but to sort of signal our allegiances. But, um, but look at the world around us. I mean, Steve Pinker, in his wonderful book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, made a claim which I think is is really true and really important which is uh, the world has been getting better and better and better. Um, in terms of violence, our violence has been dropping, wars have been dropping, certainly in terms of treatment of individuals like gay people, ethnic minorities, trans people. In my lifetime, there's been a revolution in how we treat gay people and trans people. And a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of that could be credited to the activities of reason and rationality. We're becoming smarter when it comes to morality, just like we become smarter when it comes to science. So you weren't too too put off your hopeful position uh, watching um, certain political rallies where people would say, uh, be approached with a fact and they say, well, I just don't believe that. So the 2016, the year 2016, I will admit is a rough year for somebody who's trying to defend how rational and reasoned we are. But politics makes idiots of us, of us all. Um, I think uh, I think in politics, it's because there's different things going on. I think one thing is people tend to say stupid things and believe stupid things because in that way they're not aspiring towards the truth. What they're doing is signaling their allegiance. Um, if you say to your kid, you're the best kid ever, well, that's probably not true. It'd be strange if your kid was the best kid ever. But you're not trying to, you know, you're not writing it down for truth. You're telling your kid how much you love your kid. If you think that George Bush planned a 9-11 attacks or Barack Obama's born in Kenya. You're probably not trying to get to the truth. You're just saying, this is my team. Boo Bush. Boo Obama. And even maybe justifying your position, right? Exactly. Exactly. You're so, so my feeling is, and, and there's a lot of good research to be done on this. It hasn't been done. That a lot of the stupid things people say during a political season on both sides um, they really don't believe. It's um, Forget about you talking about kids. A better example is, imagine you're cheering for your sports team. You're cheering for the Red Sox or whatever. Um, you might come to say all sorts of things that objectively aren't true. Like, we're going to win this time. Really? Will you put money on it? No. But I'll say it, and I'll say it real loud. It's the same thing, I think, for a lot of politics. I think when you look at people outside of the of the sort of grand political context. You look at people sitting around a table arguing about where to go on vacation or at a town meeting uh, in a, some sort of small town planning about sidewalks. They're a lot smarter. They, they stick to the facts. They're very interested in the consequences. We're not angels. We're not perfect. But presidential politics captures humanity at its worst. 
And you mentioned consequences, and, and that was a theme throughout the book, that thinking about consequences of our decisions is, a, is an important part of our reasoning. Um, you said, I want to make a case for the value of conscious, deliberative reasoning in everyday life, arguing that we should strive to use our heads rather than our hearts. So I'm wondering where, if and where there is a balance between using our mind and using our hearts. Um, when it comes to decision-making, I think we should just use our minds. I mean, our, our hearts, our emotions, it's all the brain, but, but our emotions and our, our motivations are wonderful to prod us from place to place and give us value to different things. But when it comes to making the decisions, um, I think uh, we're best off when we try to sort of think rationally and try to figure out how to achieve certain goals. In, in connection with that, you had mentioned that we have biases in our empathy. And there was one example in the book about um, AIDS victims and that people felt different levels of compassion or, based on whether or not the victim had gotten AIDS through drug use or blood transfusion. And that made me think a lot about how empathy works and the idea that they were judging what the morality of sort of how this person contracted it. And also, I was thinking, what if in this experiment you adjusted for commonalities? Would that shift the bias away? That that if if the person was shown that they actually had a lot in common with this person who actually got AIDS through drug use, would that shift it, do you think, their, their bias of empathy? It might be that if you raised other features of the person, you could increase the empathy. But I don't think the effect would go away. I think that if you had, even if you were really close to somebody, your empathy would be shifted if you believed that their situation was their fault, they're morally to blame, or not. This happens with strangers, but it also happens with people close to you. I mean, imagine, this study hasn't been done, but imagine instead of AIDS, the study was just a friend of yours, and your friend is describing some awful situation she's in. But she, te but she tells you, and you believe it's all her fault. It's because of her own dumb mistakes. You'd feel less empathy, less compassion for her than if you believed that she, it was, she was an innocent victim. And let's talk, you have a whole chapter on the relationship between empathy and morality. Um, what are the most important connections to understand in that relationship? Well, I think the most important thing to realize is that you can do the exercise of coolly, calmly figuring out what's the best thing to do? What's the best? And, and people differ, but we can think about simple cases. Like, like is it better to save one person or a hundred people? Is it better to, uh, should when we care about people, should we take their skin color into account? Things like that. Um, should we stop a vaccine program if a child dies even if the vaccine program saves a dozen lives each year and there's no alternative to it. So you think about them sort of coolly and relaxedly. You come to your answers, and I think you and I would have the same answers to all those questions. And then we step back and say, what does empathy tell us? What empathy tells us is the white for me and for you, the white kid is better than a black kid. The one is more than the hundred. And if a single child dies, it's the end of the world. Stop the program. And so then you can kind of realize, gee, empathy and morality are pointing in different ways. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. So maybe the important thing is to have a stopgap between the emotional reaction to then taking a moment and saying, all right, what, what is, this is how I feel about it, but what is the rational arguments um, on each side of the decision? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is true when we're deliberating over decisions ourselves, but also when we hear arguments raised by others, like, like politicians. When politicians say, oh, you know, you should adopt my health care plan, because let me tell you the story of a small child. We should say, no, start with your story. Give us the data. Is it a good health care plan or not? Um, I don't actually have a settled opinion on, say, Obamacare what we should do about it, whether it's good or bad and everything. Like that. But I'll tell you, telling me stories about people is a useless way of making a rational decision. Any large scale decision from healthcare to going to war to affirmative action is going to have winners and losers in the short term. That's just 
the, the way things go. So the fact you could pick out somebody who lost out and make me feel for their suffering isn't even an argument at all. And yet you had said that when you spoke to people about taking that piece away from their repertoire of uh, getting money for a cause or something like that, that they were, you know, the worst thing possible because it's so effective, showing it a is. picture, telling a story. Racist appeals are also powerfully effective. Um, but we have a lot less of them now because they're culturally disapproved of. Even the most right-wing American politician wouldn't go up and say, you know, let's do this for the white people. Because, you know, they only a small fraction of the population would take them seriously. There are racist dog whistles and racist hints, but you don't do that sort of thing. And so one way to make this sort of storytelling a lot less effective is if people like you and me shake our heads at it. If, if when, if when, a president, and all the presidents do this, giving state union speech says, let me tell you about the war I want you to get into. And, and to do this, I'm gonna show you this person. And they, they often literally point to a person. The camera spans it. Let me tell you a story about this person. If what happened is we responded, people responded by saying, that is a crap argument. That is, that is, that is a loud, and, and we, we acknowledge that. Maybe politicians would stop doing it. So would you say that you're skeptical and you're a, a, a promoter of skepticism? No, I, I'm, I'm, well, I'm skeptical about empathy, obviously, for, for, is the theme of the book, but I'm, I'm tremendously optimistic about rationality. Um, I think we have this extraordinary capacity to override our gut feelings, to in some sense use our evolved intellect to override other aspects of our evolved emotional systems to make the world a better place. And I guess I was using skepticism and it's, it's complex in the way that empathy is in the idea of, of questioning and rational thought versus being oh. pessimistic. But you're right. Yes. <laughs> yes. In that sense, I'm a huge fan of skepticism. I think that, I think that, that the most intimate and fundamental gut feelings, the feeling that we should help this person and not that person, we should examine critically. So I want but to I talk, better, talk about two things in our last few minutes. One we'll, we'll get back to, which is intuition, which I'm going to question if it's a, the fourth kind of empathy and that it has a place somewhere. Um, but before that, I want to talk about the, the, what might be the double bind even of empathy in, in when it, it rears a, a negative head. I was thinking about jury decisions, and I was thinking about a case where there was um, police brutality and that... If the jury, and you might say I'm taking it too far with this, but if the, the jurors listen to it and they actually empathize with the person who was beaten up, so they feel mm -hmm. their pain and they also feel a commonality, that they might be actually more likely to say that the police were innocent and that they did not do it because they don't want to believe that that could happen to them and that if they feel this empathy with the victim, um, that they might more strongly sort of to protect themselves and their idea of the world and their sense of safety say, no, this couldn't, the police couldn't have done this the way they're saying because that would mean it could happen to me. In that kind of world, because I have this empathetic connection, I, then it could happen to me and I can't believe that. It's possible. I think it's an interesting idea. I mean, I'm tempted to another hypothesis, which is, you know, this, these examples were given by Adam Smith in the 1700s. He didn't talk about police brutality, but he said, if you really empathize with the victims of something, you really want to strike back at the person who caused them pain. And this is why there would be a certain dynamic in this imaginary court case you have, where the prosecution is really going to want to make you um, feel empathy for the victim. The victim you portrayed as a good person, a person just like you, a decent person, because the prosecution wants you to punish the police officer, while the defense would probably want to make you feel empathy for the police officer. And so many battles back and forth are not whether or not to feel empathy, but who to feel empathy for. And that's and, I, and it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that sort of example, but court cases are often like that, where you know where where. Uh, 
if somebody is the victim of a crime, for instance, often the defense will try to sully that person in different ways so that nobody feels empathy for them, so that nobody feels anger towards the offender. And you talk about both of those situations in World War II, some examples in your book, about the dehumanization and therefore creating a lack of empathy because they're not us. And so mm-hmm. I don't empathize with. And, and, and another situation where the U.S. soldiers were being brutal because, again, empathy, but, but flipped on its head. Not- yeah, I mean... The- the study of evil is is really interesting. I think there's a lot of evil that does involve dehumanization, but there's also a lot of evil that involves intimacy. Um, we're most cruel. If you think of somebody as non-human, you may want to exterminate them, or certainly you don't want to help them. You don't. You'll just ignore their problems. But to be really cruel, to want to make people suffer, to humiliate people, to want to torment people. That requires humanizing them. That requires a rich personal connection. And this is why, you know, the the most extreme cruelties are done, I think, between people who are in intimate relationships. So the the last topic, um, intuition and whether or not it has a a place and a place in empathy as far as uh, a sense of knowing um, with maybe a combination of sort of you've got you've got imagining and you have feeling, and then is this there is there this other thing um, that's not shared experience and it's not imagining, um, but it's it's a sense. What do you to give me an well, example? Well, when you were you talking about gut feeling and sort of the idea that gut feeling, you know, we we need we it's best if we reject that in decision making, and I guess I was yeah. thinking that that there's a different sort of gut feeling that might not be empathetic necessarily, but because it's not connected with the other as much as it's a sense from yourself. So it's not, you're not being empathetic in the sense of their experience and sharing or mirroring it, but in reaction to their situation or a situation in general, that you are having a, an emotional feeling yeah. Um, that may serve some place in this decision-making process of the rational mind. Yeah, I think um, I think it definitely does happen. You could be in a situation, for instance, and you, you start to feel anger. You're not really sure where it's coming from. Or you start to feel a strong sense of moral approval to somebody or gratitude or disapproval. And you can't really figure out where this is coming from. And I guess what I would suggest is um, distrust it. Distrust it. Our, our gut feelings, our intuitions, as you call them, have been shaped by evolution for all sorts of purposes and, and are exquisitely sensitive to circumstances, but they haven't been shaped for a greater moral end. And they don't make us good people. They might make us successful people. They may be useful. It is tremendously useful for animals like us to favor people who look like us than people who are different. They sh- we share more genes. We're from the same community. But it might not be right. And so, um, so when faced with this gut feeling or intuition, you're right, we should examine it. But I think there again, we should be highly skeptical of it. And how about uh, cognitive empathy? Where is that best? What, what place does that best serve? In the it's always good process? to understand other people. It's always good to figure out what's in their heads. Hopefully, you'll have good ends. Even if you have bad ends, of course, it's very good. Successful psychopaths are very good at figuring out what other people are thinking and want and what hurts them. Um, the difference between bullies and people who are bullied, typically, is that bullies have higher cognitive empathy than the people who are bullied. To be a good bully, you got to understand other people. Um, but I think to be good, you have to under- have cognitive empathy. You mentioned in some way uh, the aftermath of the election. I'm not sure if people should feel empathy for their political foes in any sense of the term, and emotional empathy certainly not. But but understanding why people voted for the candidate you didn't vote for, I think is really important. And there's ways to have this understanding. For instance, you could ask them. That's a very powerful tool. And does an emotional intelligence 
fit into, I guess the question is, where does emotional intelligence fit into this, this scheme? Because the, again, that's something that now is extremely popular and it's being focused on in school, the idea that we can, we can increase, we might not be able to increase our intellectual intelligence, but we can com, com, increase our emotional intelligence and that this can be huge in our relationships with others and our success in life generally. Yeah, people use, people, um, mean different things by emotional intelligence, but often they typically mean cognitive empathy, understanding other people, um, as well as some ability to manipulate them. And it's a, you know, it's a powerful tool. It's very related to, to regular IQ. I mean, one of the problems that, one of the, not problems, but one of the sort of things that we've always struggled with is people always try to find um, alternatives to IQ, but, um, but everything seems to correlate with IQ. Show me somebody who has exquisite emotional intelligence. I'll show you somebody whose who score is very high in an IQ test. But emotional intelligence, to go back to what you're saying, is I think intimately connected to what we're talking about as cognitive empathy. So where did you travel from the time you started the book to the time you finished the book? Um, I worked in the book for a couple of years, and um, I talked to a lot of people. And... Um, the most, the thing, the issues I struggled with most uh, is a lot of what we've been talking about is the role of uh, empathy in uh, intimate relationships. Where, you know, I began to sort of, I, I, in my, my, my chapter, I talk about all sorts of things. And, and I realized there's in some way empathy does, is useful. Sometimes people want it. Um, and sometimes it could lead it astray. But for me, that was the course of the biggest, the biggest struggle, the biggest changes as I wrote my book. And that makes me think of the, the, which we haven't talked about, sympathy, and how sympathy is related to either type of empathy. So sympathy is, is originally, what I'm calling empathy was called sympathy in, this, in the 18th century. If, if, if Adam Smith or David Hume was here, they'd use the term sympathy, and we'd talk, get along perfectly well. Um, now sympathy refers to sort of... Uh, People use that word in so many different ways, but it refers to sort of a reaction to other people's suffering and wanting to make it better. So it's a form of compassion, I would think. Does that fit with how you'd use the word? Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes it can be connected with pity. And again, it's like, you know, the empathy, it might have the positive and the negative. Yeah. So I'm not sure pity is very helpful. Yeah, I would agree with that. So I think I'm going to vote for cognitive empathy. That's <laughs> my Good. vote. Good, and excellent. I think that your solution as far as your foes in politics, the, to ask someone maybe why they did what they did, I think is probably the solution in your intimate relationships as well. Maybe not for in the situation maybe why they did what they did, but also what they want. That's a good insight. I like that. Instead of trying to figure it out either cognitively or emotionally. Yep. Or just pity yep. them. I mean, I'm enough of a psychologist to know that people lie. And even when they're not lying, they often don't know what they want. But it's a good start. Okay, maybe that's the next book. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. It was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. It was you. terrific. And the thank book is fabulous. It just came out and a must read for all. It will definitely make the world a better place. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks, Paul. <laughs>